Hello, welcome to IRC Book Club, the show where we talk about sales books and business books and reconstructs and deconstructs and do all that good stuff with them. Pricey, how are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Yeah, good. all good. Good. If you're watching this this week, it is a recording, uh, as whilst you are watching this, I'm on holiday. Uh, so Hawaiian Tropic. <laughs> Hawaiian Tropic. Do you know how pink I go? In, like, <laughs> That's because you know, sunshine is oh, This is my kids. Slightest my, kids my, my wife protects my kids from every single ray of sunshine so that when they're grown ups, they'll be unable to go out listeners pricey has one extremely blonde child and one very ginger child exactly they need to get their children are protected from the sun <laughs> so i'm built for the sun that's why i was perfectly built for the sun right so we're on objections by jeb blunt 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 i'm sure one day he'll come on the show and tell us all about how to pronounce his name uh, and last week we did chapters one and two this week, I believe, we are on chapters three and four, are we not? Certainly are. Um, I've liked the book so far. Yeah? You enjoying it? I've liked it, but I've not been blown away by it yet. No. It's told me a lot of things that I've gone, oh, thank God somebody's written that in a sales book, not some of these other garbage that we've read. And actually, it resonates with me. But I've not as yet read anything in it where I've thought, all oh, right, yeah, I hadn't thought about it like that. But I have agreed with everything the guy said. I think it's been a good text thus far. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty... I'll tell you what I'm glad about. I'm glad he's firstly talking more about objections. Yes. And I think he's right. I think he's picked a good topic. Fair play to him. Um, we picked up on some good stuff last week. Uh, so we've got... Chapter three is the four objections you meet in a deal. Do you know what's interesting about this, actually? Is I, I liked what he was talking about in terms of... You get objections when you're prospecting, which is where the prospect is just trying to bum you off the phone. Yeah. That's an objection. Too right. I'm too busy. Is, is it, an object. I can't talk right now. It's an, an objection. objection. Whereas actually, I think a lot of people, you know, some of the guys, for example, we've had here and I've seen just in general, they think, oh, the guy's too busy. No, he's not. No, he's not. It's an you're objection. You're just not exciting enough. Is the, 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 your prospect is objecting to you. And I thought to myself, fair play, Jeb. You're absolutely yeah. 100% right. Yeah. And I thought the next part of the thing i actually wrote something next to it he talks about red herring objections i'd say the red herring objection i get a lot when candidates have been offered a job they offered a job is when they start asking about the fuel allowance the minute, a, minute a candidate gets offered a job and starts talking to me about the fuel allowance what's the fuel allowance mike I, it's just an immediate that's not your objection well, we both know, you know, we're both from a school of thought, which is the presenting objection is never the presenting objection. But my point, yeah, absolutely. And that it's nearly, most, most objections are nearly always a smokescreen for another objection. And not because the buyer has been mean, it's just because that's their self-defence mechanism. Correct, yeah. So you've got prospecting objections, red herring objections, micro-commitment and buying objections. And like you said, uh, I... Um, that's right. People are crazy and see little value in spending time with salespeople through a combination of reflex responses, brush-offs and objections. RBOs, he calls them. I like that. Reflex response, brush-off and objections. They do their best to get rid of you. Prospecting objections are the most frequent and feared objections and they're at great speed and can be especially harsh. I made a note. I think 80% of the people we work with will be okay with a good, uh, with a good appointment. 
What I meant by that was I think that's really valid. If I look at a lot of the people I work with and I look at whose career goes well, whose career goes badly, who makes loads of money, who doesn't, I reckon if I took an 80% junk of the candidates I've worked with throughout my career, 80% I'm giving you now. Yeah. I reckon that if you gave them all pound for pound, the best telesales guy in the world who booked them appointments, most of them would be really good. Yes, I agree. Most, I'd say 80% of the people I work with, if you filled their diary full of appointments with a half decent, not even probably half decent, probably mediocre product, 80% of them would hit number. But the difference for me often is that percentage that can get themselves in front of customers. It always makes me smile, and you know. so I thought that, prospecting <clears throat> objections, I thought, okay, right, you, now we're talking, Jeb. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with him. Whereas, like, you know, normally, um, if you said to a salesperson, where's your number one objection? I think they would always say signing the contract. But I think if you can't get through the door, you're never going to get up to a contract state. No. But I don't think that's how salespeople often think. And I just thought, you know, it's a short, sharp chapter, number three. So I read number four as well, actually. Yeah. But... Um, you know, he's absolutely, absolute, you know, he's, he's, he's absolutely right. Yeah, and then you've got these micro-commitment objections. He says, throughout the sales process, you'll ask stakeholders for next steps and micro-commitments. These small steps and actions keep the deals moving through the pipe. Likewise, they test the veracity of your stakeholders' engagement. Asking for and getting micro-commitments and consistently getting to the next step accelerates pipeline velocity. Deals with forward momentum have a high probability of a win and a lower chance of stalling. And I, I, I like that concept that he calls micro-commitments. Um, that's very sandlery. Yes, it is. Very sandlery. Yes, it is. Um, and also, if you read Solution Selling, um, I've read it. If you, in Solution Selling, they often talk about tasking the customer. Yes. Getting the customer to do something. Hi, here's a project plan for the procurement. Can you please sign it off? Hi, I need you to give me times and dates for the evaluation stage. Just lit teaching the customer to agreeing to doing things for you. And I used to often say to, to people, to salespeople, what you always try, little micro-commitments like, great, let's speak next Tuesday at 10, and getting them to talk to you on Tuesday at 10. Yes. And putting an, an appointment in the diary in the, as a meeting request. I really like that. Don't you think, it, I, don't, I don't think that's what he meant, actually. Don't you think he's more referring to just little tie-downs throughout the conversation? No, I think he's looking at... I don't think, I, I think he's looking at them. Do you not? No. Maybe, don't, maybe don't. we should get him on the show and ask him to clarify that. Well, I mean, either way, he's right. You know, let's be clear. I'm not, you know, for one minute, meaning split hairs necessarily. Yeah. And then you've got buying commitment objections. When you ask people to make buying decisions, sign contracts, hand over credit cards, issue POs, uh, and so you've got budget and price objections. And then he starts talking about... Um, you'll, as you'll learn with prospecting objections, having a set of responses prepared and memorised for your most common objections is important. But you still must create these scripts based on your unique situation. So hold on a minute. Are we being a bit contradictory of what we've said earlier on in the book? Yeah, no, I think you're being a bit pedantic, really. There, <laughs> am I? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I, I got, I get, I, you know, I got, I, I, uh, I, I get, I get your point. I, I think he's going to. I mean, I've not read the book this far, but I think he's going to build a framework for us, isn't he? I think so too. I, I think, think so. that's what he was teeing up there. Yes. So then we get on to, and I think then this chapter So we're on chapter four, four now. This is where it starts hitting, starts isn't it? to get real now. Yeah, The yeah. book starts to get interesting. Chapter three was... And have you noticed how in a lot of the books we read, 
I mean, I'm looking at, at my own book, which one day I will finish. A lot of these go short chapter, long chapter, short chapter, long chapter. Uh, I hadn't actually, but you're right, they do. Yeah, whereas this is a much deeper, longer chapter. We really get to some real stuff here. So let, 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 let's, let's, let's go through this one now. Pricey? Uh, well, I'll tell you the first thing I, uh, I, I, I underlined here. And um, his first objection is he said, we've done all this work. And then you get into the clothes and saying, do you want to buy it? And then the client says they've got to uh, uh, think about it. Yeah. And he says, well, what the F do you think there's left to think about? <laughs> yeah. And he goes, sign that document, you fool. Yeah. And, uh, and we've all been there. I think you get We've there all, all the time. There. And I wrote here to myself, isn't that just because it's poorly qualified? Or isn't that just because he's not selling to people that are enough in pain? And I put or this further on down the, the book. Needs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I did put down that, 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 that in the book that actually, um, I think to myself, as I read this, I think it's a good straight on tactical one-on-one -on -one objection handling uh, manual. Or I hope it's going to become as that. But I did wonder to myself, he doesn't talk much about qualifying prospects in any detail. So he walks into a lot of the objections himself, and this is to handle the objection that sits right ahead of you. Yeah, I can't afford it. Well, you can't afford it because you haven't got the budget. But I should have asked you that. But I should have asked you that before I got in my car. Yeah, but, you know, I don't want to criticise it too much because I did like, did, 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 did like the chapter. Um, and then he talks about the buyers, doesn't he? And he says, buyers don't go to objection school. They don't. Um, and then he says, buyers have condition... Uh, have been conditioned to protect themselves from pushy salespeople with obfuscation because it reduces conflict and makes them go away faster. And I've got to tell you, we are just all guilty of that. So my um, home broadband contract, uh, home broadband has now been out of contract for two and a half years. And it's just on a month on month rolling thing. And I walk past the fellow, when I park my car in town, would the car park I walk through, I walk past the Sky Guy. And the Sky Guy goes, all right, mate. Is your broadband up for renewal? And you lie. I lie. Just I can't be asked to get into it with a conversation. Can't be asked. He's tired. And the real and I'm with my kids is... and my wife. And my real objection is what I should really say to him, if I'm being honest with him, is I should say it is actually up for renewal, but this just looks like it's going to be a pain in the ass. Yeah. This so I'd rather do it online. A pain in the ass. It's going to make, my kids are going to be crawling up the wall by the time I finish signing the contract. And when he writes that, I, I think... And so a lot, you can't have your commission. And I think a lot of that happens when we canvass people. I think, you know, we say... Da, 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 da. How many times... Well, we, well how many I, times are they recruiting and say they're not? I'm not recruiting. Why? Because they just think, oh, just another I just idiot. can't be asked to get into can't it. Can't be asked to give another recruiter a job spec. Correct. And our clients, they must have the same problem with their prospects. Yeah, can't be asked to I go can't through be asked with some, some, CRM other, software. some other software vendor. I can't be asked telling him what's keeping me awake at night. And Jeb doesn't really... Because that is the objection that's impossible to overcome. What? I just can't be asked. I can't be asked. But However that, you address but, but it But that's up. a presenting objection. There's more to the presenting Yes, objection. but the reason you can't overcome it is because it's... You don't ever say, I can't be asked. You say, well, I'm not recruiting. Yeah. Okay. But, uh, you know, the point he's making is 90% of objections, I think I wrote here, 90% of objections are formed at a deeply subconscious level. Well, he's put it here, hasn't he? Yeah. But it's terrible advice for objections deeper in the sales process. Uh, I mean, they are. And his other point, he, and, and you made a point about uh, last week about the modern selling era. Go on. So I tell you what I think, I, I, where I think we're at now in IT and in IT recruitment and all kinds of other things is 
I think we just live in this cat and mouse game of I am a buyer, you are a seller. Yeah, okay. I am used to how you sell. Well, he says that here, doesn't he? Though stakeholders have not been to objection school, most have graduated Correct. from sales university. Their professors were all salespeople who came before you and your stakeholders bring all those lessons Correct. and package into interactions with you. Correct. And that's the real objection, isn't it? Accelerated and compounded by the fact that they can now see everything on YouTube, social media. We interact much more quickly than we ever did. Yes. And we can also often make some quite big enterprise procurements now without ever touching a sales professional. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Absolutely. So, so, so what you're saying is the buyers are wilier than they've ever been. Yes, but they're not wilier. A lot of the sales books paint the buyers to be wily because the buyers have been mean or, be, or lying or whatever. All that's happened is we as sellers have conditioned them into that. Yes, and I also think that the landscape has shifted radically since I Well, the information that's in the background has, 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 has the changed the landscape. have miles more info. Yeah, they do, yeah. On Absolutely. the products, on the products, the technologies, they're miles more clued up. And more specifically, there are, they can make so many enterprise purchases now via a trial or a puppy dog sale and evaluate alternatives much more firsthand. So therefore, it damages the, the influence. And the, in our world, it's much harder... I think now than it's ever been to influence the outcome of a deal and an evaluation because it's so much easier, particularly with SaaS and cloud-based software, for a customer to evaluate alternatives. I, I, mean, I do agree with you. And then, but then he goes on, actually, page 30, which I sort of like. I underlined it. But this is terrible advice for objections deeper in the sales process. Salespeople, especially those new to the profession, mistake never take no for an answer with argue your prospect into submission. Okay, I've got a point. I've got some thoughts on that. Go on then. Right. He says, you cannot argue people into believing they're wrong. I often hear tra trainers use the phrase combating objections. Some teach in inverted commas rebuttals. And he, he kind of says that in a disparaging way. Sadly, this poor advice derails salespeople in their quest to get past no. Well, I'll tell you what. I'd rather see a clumsy salesperson battle and fight with an objection until the death than some guy who doesn't have a go at all. I would, but you've got to understand, if they battle and win and fight to the death, they, they, lose long they will win, but the, the, the buyer's remorse will just come back. Yeah, you lose. often win the battle and I, lose I think war. if you're battling that much, what, what you want to be able to do is have a real honesty statement, isn't it? And, and you've got your prospects at opposite you and say, listen, can we just dispense with all this, there's all this frontage we've got with one another. You be honest with me and I'll be honest with you. Why don't you what's, your, what's your issue? Yeah, but a lot of customers don't know what their issue is because what the point is, Jeb's saying, is it, it's often a lot of the objections come from such a deep emotional well, place. Well, there are objections originate at an emotional level. Yeah. What he's saying in the book is that they come from such a deep emotional place that you can argue till your head falls off, but if you're not actually arguing with the emotional bit, you could, well, there is, I mean, there is you, no rational objection. Well, he says here, doesn't he? In every sales conversation, the person who exerts the greatest amount of emotional control has the highest probability of getting the outcome they desire phone <laughs> it's on silent is it yeah i can't show you because it'll say whose name it is it's on silent right. he wants to talk to you though but anyway so going back to the uh, uh, emotional control 
I get Jeb's point, and I think he's. You, you I know, like he's his right. point here. He talks about um, how uh, the people keep using the same tactic, or he says he's certainly there are salespeople out there, mostly in transactional, one call, close situations, slinging one-liners like this in high-pressure situations. Sometimes it works, but on the back end of it, many of these deals fall apart from buyer's remorse. Most of the wins are random and occur in spite of the one-liner, not because of it. But because it appeared to work, the salespeople are deluded into thinking the tactic is successful. So they keep using it. And each random win supports their false belief they're doing it. It's called intermittent reinforcement. What page are you on here? This is 30. The same psychological phenomenon that keeps people playing slot machines. I like that. It is. It's, it, 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 it's the same thing. It's like, oh, well, I, I, I want to quit out that machine. And actually, there's another slot machine analogy later on. Obviously, likes a little bit of a play, this fella. Um, I remember putting that. I put another pound in the fruit machine, yeah. Yeah. And then he goes on, he starts talking about how objections, he uses this word, the act of overcoming creates animosity. And I felt, well, you've been a bit semantic here, Jed, because actually overcoming versus handling or overcoming versus working with, it's splitting airs a bit for me. But I'll tell you where it does get interesting for me is he starts talking about objections originating at this deep emotional level. And I wrote underneath on my notes, when I studied buyer behaviour at university and my marketing degree back in the mid 90s, that's what got me into selling because I was fascinated with what drove people to buy stuff. And, I, and, and so he's really got me now because this is my subject. Do you know, he lost me a little bit here. Really? Yeah, he did. Because he starts talking about the brain and, and the amygdala. heuristics. And I just thought, and, and I can see why he's telling me it. Because he wants, the, he, he was explaining how the limbic system works. Da, 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 da. I just thought that's a bit boring, really, Jed. Is what I honestly thought of that bit. Yeah, but then, but then it gets very interesting. He talks about the human brain. So basically what he's saying is that, I'll, I'll read the, the, the paragraph and explain. What he's saying is moving slowly had the tendency to remove one's DNA from the gene pool, i.e. if you were a slow mover, you died. So human brains evolved to think fast. With so much sensory information hitting us at one time, we needed a way to focus on only those environmental anomalies that might be dangers or opportunities. The human brain became a pattern monster, ignoring most incoming data so it could focus on things that stuck out. Different, new, dangerous. Your brain is a master at grabbing the billion bits of information in the environment around you, interpreting the patterns and behaving appropriately in response to those patterns. What he's alluding to here is how... Um, it's just alluding to conditioned response. No, he's not. No, far from it. What he's alluding to is he's saying, basically, to make sense of the world, the human, there is so much sensory input coming at us at any given point in time. Yeah, yeah. So there's light, sound, the dirty martini, this, that, and there's millions of things firing at us, but we can only really process two or three things at once. So to make sense of that, the human brain creates patterns. Like, and, and the analogy I've often used when I've been working with people that work for us is, that we run tapes in response to certain stimuli. We have a little tape in our brain in response to certain stimuli. So, for example, customers run a, oh, God, here's a sales call tape when yeah, they no, get isn't one. Isn't that just a conditioned response? Because they are it, that used it, to receiving more, sales calls. It's a pattern. It's like, and it's important. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, so I, I'm being I, a bit semantic with it. But what he's basically saying is objections are patterns from a deep emotional place. Most objects. So where he's taking us here is getting us into thinking about the tapes that 
the, well, he's got to get us into breaking the pattern, isn't he? Correct. And I like that. That's great. This is getting interesting now. Does that mean I agree with him? Yeah. He's, he's, he's right, but I think he goes Ra along. Rather than, rather, than, rather than, he's going to start talking about, I would imagine, in later chapters, interrupting the patterns rather than necessarily arguing Tackling with the objection. Yeah, 100% yeah, that's what he's going he's to he's, he's get into. And I do think that's right, you know, but I did think... And, and then I've put here, so, so I got a bit bored through a few pages. And what then page I, you on? 36. And I'm this, on 36 And this is where well. I put, I knew, something was, I knew something was going to happen. And the battle of the line was, when you look, act and feel like every other sales rep who emails, provides a demo, yeah. presents pictures, challenges or walks into the door, your stakeholder finds you boring and shifts into their reflexive bias script. Yeah, they run and that's what I'm talking about, about it being a conditioned response. Yes. Because let's get it right. It fires so, off the anchor, doesn't it? see what happens, right? So I say, hello, my name's Michael Price. I'm calling from Inward Revenue. I pause. I always pause. Because I always want to know if they recognise my name. Yeah. Because they might do. And then I say, I'm a sales recruiter. And I pause. And I tell you what I actually wait for. I wait for the sigh. And I wait for the sigh. And I then say, oh, died. And it's just like you can hear them almost on the phone go, what? Yeah, it's a pattern interrupt. A straight pattern interrupt. Yeah. Every time I canvas you all now, you know that. And I go, oh, you've sighed. And, and another I, favourite line of yours is, this is, a, this is a sales call. I always say that, yeah. This is a sales call. I'm canvassing you today. Just for a pattern interrupt. And they sigh. And then I go, you've sighed. And, and, then I, and then I just nearly give them enough time to speak. And then I go, but do you know why you've sighed? And they go, no. And I say, that's because you've mistaken me for one of the other recruiters that's called you. Yeah, so you've and created a differentiator. In. In. But least that's what, that's what you're talking about You've got a little laugh out there. of them, a little bit of engagement. No, you broke the pattern. Yeah. Because see what happens with the sigh normally, I think, is that the bad salesperson Keeps ignores talking. the sigh and then, they, and then they walk into the objection. Well, they do the whole, hi, it's so-and-so, so-and-so from, from Bivik Struthers, Bivik Struthers and Smith Associates. Hi, it's Angela from Monster. Oh, God, Angela. Gotta love you because you canvassed me, but... Oh. Hello, Michael. It's Angela from Monster. Yes. <laughs> well, that's the problem, isn't it? I'm calling about the accident, whatever. And that's what I'm talking about, about the... Well, there's, the, there is a response. tone. It's all about patterns, isn't it? There is a sound of a salesperson making a shit sales call. It has a sound. Okay. Now, maybe that's because I'm quite an auditory guy. And, I, and, and, you know, music, sound, tonality has an me incredible, too. important place for me. But there is a sound. There's yes, a, you notice it. The others don't. The others, the other buyers don't notice it. But it's, but it's, the, the but it's still. They it's, don't it's, notice it, it consciously. But their but it, subconscious, their amygdala, their reptilian brain. I was going goes, to say more their anchor. Yeah, the, the, it's like a smell, isn't it, or whatever. The reptilian part of them just goes. Here we go. So, but but I felt like it took me five pages to build up to that. Yes. Actually, if I'm honest. Yeah. And then and he it, goes, it, the safety bias causes your buyer's brain to be more aware of bad things, what could go wrong, than good things, yep. what could go right. In evolutionary terms, it makes sense. Although you might miss the opportunity for such, such thing as a free lunch. And I mean, this is just so true, right? So where we are in central Leeds, it's right, it's in a main street. You know this, obviously, Jonathan. But it's in a main street and they're always giving away free stuff. Yeah. And I love free stuff because I'm really tight fisted. You are. Yeah, but I always look at it and think I just can't be bothered. And the woman will go because always have really attractive women speak to me clearly. Yeah, 
And she'll go, do you want a free Diet Coke? No. Now, actually, I love Diet Coke. It's my number one favourite drink. But I think, no, just because I can't be asked talking to you. And that's what he's talking about here, isn't well, it? He's, he, he's he, talking he about safety Kahneman. bias. He quotes Daniel Kahneman here. He says, and the quote he takes out of thinking fast and slow is, organisms that place more urgency on avoiding threats than they did, maximising opportunities, were more likely to pass on their genes. Over time, the prospect of losses has become a more powerful motivator on your behaviour than the promise of gain. Mm. So what he's basically saying is, screwing stuff up or not screwing up, not breaking the status quo, is a better option in most selling situations for the buyer than trying something new. Correct, yeah, 100%, that's what he's saying. Being resistant. Well, let's is get it right. We have we have clients who keep salespeople who are on safety bias, and that's why we get candidates that go to work at Oracle and uh, IBM and in partially. Big I was more going to say well, that's well, it's why the we... safety bias. They choose the safe gig. Mm, that's they, they buy the no, but it isn't. That's, that's why people buy brands. It's the safety bias. No, I think a lot of people buy brands with their ego. Actually. Well, there's, there's, there's a whole load of different but, things in brands. I was going to say, that's why we have clients who have got salespeople on 40%, because at least he's bringing me 40%. Yes. If I changed him, I could get nothing. Yeah, yeah. Now, I had this with a client. Well, they're not a client. <laughs> uh, with a prospect that I wanted to be a client. And we got talking about it, and I said, you hired such and such. It, what's your point? I said, come on, you should have hired better than him. And yeah. you could immediately see it. And I thought, right, I've lost this client now. But... Anyway. Yeah, but that's, that, that's Jeb Blunt's in, in, in the book is directly saying you can't tell a customer. Once, that cust once you're in that place where it's, hm, you screwed up, you're done. You're, in, you're into heavy objection handling, aren't you? Yeah, we created your own objection. So I, I, I anyway, we've, got, we've got to keep going with this book. I've and he to... says here, as humans, we tend to be attracted to safe choices and safe environments. And he's right. That is why people buy safe brands, safe cars. I don't think that, that's his point, actually. I think his it point is. is that's why we don't do anything. Because we've currently got what we've got. You're talking about buying, which is slightly different, I think. No, I don't agree. I think salespeople, are, as a rule, are not perceived as safe. You pose a threat, your buyers are worried. Yes, yeah, so what don't do anything. Make, yeah, so what they're saying is do now. But I think you'll also find that one of the reasons why people make certain purchases is it's a safety purchase. They do, but there's other parts in that brand. There's other parts in that purchase. So why do people go and work at Oracle? Partially safety, partially because evidently you can earn loads of money, which of course you can, partially so they can sell the mum and dad. There's three, yes, there's there's three part, or four-part the, process. The, there's the ego part of being able to tell their mates in the pub that they work at Oracle, but there is also the, it's a brand I know, it's the devil I know. Yeah, well, we've got to crack, crack through this purely because it's such a good book. We've been reading it now for half, we've gone half an hour. And we've got to go out tonight. Well, we, well not, not so much that, we've been going half an hour. This is going into an hour's worth of show. And I've got to say, that's how much I liked the book. Yeah, It's okay. not like I'm dragging it through. The, the next thing I, that I read and I really... It, 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 I bet it, you it's page 38, bottom, bottom left corner. Uh, yeah, I thought that was pretty obvious. It wasn't actually. It was page 39, actually, which is under triggering the negativity bias. Where's that? Despite oh, the yeah, almost yeah. universal perception that salespeople will say I'd do anything to get the deal, which is a load of rubbish, I rarely meet salespeople who harbour ill intentions. Most sales professionals do those things. And I've got to tell you, it is one of my pet hates. Where's with that? With society, down there. One of my pet hates with society, that people, general public, general people, have such a negative perception of salespeople that everyone's out there to rip each other off. I've got to tell you, as a man that's dealt with salespeople for a long time, 
I absolutely agree with Jeb Bunn. I think he's right. I think a lot of salespeople act with good intent. Yeah. But, don't, but society doesn't think I that. I think a lot of salespeople act with too much good intent. Yeah, but society doesn't think that. My mum doesn't think that. Right. My wife doesn't think that. Okay. Anyway, that was me again. I'm a high horse about salespeople. Okay. Um, here you go. This was a point that, 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 that I wanted to bring up. He says, buying a new product or switching vendors carries real risk for stakeholders. And I wrote, I don't agree. I think there is less risk than there has ever been. You know, we live yeah, in but still carries risk, though. Look at the guy that bought the NatWest computer system. Yeah, okay. But I think if you look at a lot of our world and our market and a lot of the people we deal with now, a lot of the way that the software is sold is such that clients can have a POC. Maybe, maybe. But they can have a puppy dog trial. Yeah, but, but let's get it right, Johnny. We live in this sort of false world, really, because do with IT salespeople that are loads yes, of money. Yes, whereas if you're selling some massive piece of capital equipment Well, what if you're selling a somebody a pension? Company, yeah. That procurement has massive risk with it. Yes, it does. What if does. you're buying a house and you're dealing with some cheesy estate agent? That purchase has massive risk with it. Yeah, can't What if you're it. buying a family car... It's out of warranty. It's five years old. It's still 15 grand. Huge risk, huge risk. Massive. Yes. But in our world... In our world, I agree with you. In our world, and I think that... that it, I've seen this in the salesmanship of the people we deal with. I don't think it's as great as it was when I first left uni. Yeah, you Why? Right. Because I think the nature of the market, particularly software, means that I can sell a piece of enterprise software and I can say to the client, you can try it first if you want. Yeah, I agree. The next thing you talk, so I can de-risk it for the customer. I, I, I like this bit. Stakeholders are scrutinising you. They're looking for congruence in your words, non-verbal communication and actions. I've got to tell you now, you know the people that I like in my personal life, people who are congruent. Don't care how rich or poor they are. Yeah. Men or women, couldn't care less. Doesn't matter what, doesn't matter how you dress, doesn't matter how you couldn't look. Couldn't care less. What, they're, what, 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 what I think stakeholders buy is that calm congruence. Because you remember Chris Spencer, right? So Chris Spencer, I doubt he's watching it. But Pepper. we worked for him at Emis. I mean, let's get it right. He was scruffy. <laughs> wasn't scruffy he's just odd, odd in his personal presence. no he was scruffy chris if you're watching this you were scruffy <laughs> your son jacob spencer said you look like the man off what do you say uh the man off the something advert but i've got to tell you it just all fitted together and chris was one of the most credible people you've ever met in your life congruent that's what i mean it fitted very together. comfy with who he was but it fitted together very perfectly comfy. um so i mean i'm really you know he's uh, and, and jed's point is is if you're congruent, you're going to come up and come up against less objections because they can smell and see an objection in you because they look at you, the they feel the incongruence, they then start scrutinising you and they then create objections. And he is Well, how many salespeople right. do we work with who will never know that the reason their sales career isn't working is more often than not, predominantly because at an identity level, they aren't congruent with oh, their career. Well, we don't send them to interviews. I don't. Well, well, I don't. Our interview process is designed to weed that out. I don't. But they often end up, they stay in the career, they stay in the career, they stay in the career, but actually it's not a congruent career. I, I send and people. customers smell that on them. The interviewers do as well. Just their customers smell it. I thought there was a great point here, page 43, um, where he's talking about... The sunk cost fallacy. The sunk cost fallacy. Don't you find sales authors love sort of pith... Dramatic. They like drama. Yeah. So he says here, the decision maker at the company said, we know that the training we're getting from our current vendor isn't optimal and it is not helping us reach our goals. But we've already invested so much with them, we feel like we need to see if we can find a way to fix the problem. Months later, nothing had changed, but it didn't matter. They were comfortable with the status quo. 
Now I'm dealing with two clients that are in a very similar position at the moment. I'm dealing with one, both of them are in the healthcare sector. I'm dealing with one who works with a competitor of mine who is an absolute shyster and he keeps placing people there that he damn well knows are Muppets. And every six months to nine months, the client comes back to him to hire another one and doesn't appear to blame the recruiter for the quality of the candidates that he's uh, getting through yeah, the process. I mean, I can and that's good of the client that he accepts responsibility. But at some point, the client's got to think, maybe this source of candidates isn't working out for me. And then I've got another client that I've been working with and I actually went out and spent a lot of time with her in her offices in London. And he put me through the ringer for nearly two hours about inward revenue, our value proposition, how we could help. And yeah, I've got to look at myself. I have not won here. I've sold badly. I've, I have not overcome this objection. She has an incumbent supplier who has been working on a campaign for an MD and a sales exec for six months, not filled a job. But she's got it in her head. She doesn't want... She actually said to me, I don't want to upset them. Wow, that's mad, isn't it? That was the objection. And I thought that's fascinating that actually, you know, he calls that the sunk cost fallacy. And, you know, I'd never really thought about it. I mean, I tried everything to overcome that objection. And, and I've got to say, I, Jeb, I failed. I didn't do it. And I wish I'd had your book because I know there's going to be a well, way of overcoming it. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I'm, I'm skipping a few pages when I say this, but not out of anything other than um, what you should have said to her was, you should have said, Go on. let's say she's called Linda. I don't know her name. I don't know who it is. But let's say you should have said, Linda, tell me, what do you like about the other supplier? Yes, that's what he's saying. What do you like about them? Because what he's saying is, I can't rubbish You can't them. overcome the objection. And the, by attacking the objection. No. And but I you can't, can overcome it and by I can't, bringing it into you. I can't... What he's saying is, I can't nail them for the fact that... I can't nail them over the opportunity you, cost of six months of lost time. You're saying she's an idiot. Correct. But what, but what Jed's saying is... And, she's, and she has gone back to them and said, let's come back to this. I'm going to give them another few exactly. weeks. And do you know where they're at? Six weeks on, since I met the client, they still haven't filled the job. So I think what's interesting about that is is what Jed's saying is you should suck her into getting to talk about what she likes about the objection. I think what he's going to say is actually to to well, You've got to get interrupt. her to overcome the objection herself. Well, he's going to talk about pattern interrupt, isn't it? Yeah. Now, what I did think was very true, I think it was Jordan. Did Jordan Belfort have a pendulum in his book, or was it Sandler? Belfort. No, it's Sandler. Well, Can't... why did you ask me then? Because <laughs> I wrote Jordan in here, and when I've just read it, I've, I've thought to myself, no, it was Sandler, actually. But do you remember the pendulum? Yeah. Well, the pendulum goes plus three, minus three, plus three, the sold, minus three, the not. Yeah. You're only at two. Swing it the other way to get some momentum going back up. Yep. I thought that was very similar, actually. Yeah. So what he's saying is, with that particular objection, he's saying, I get her to say, oh, they, they, they... So, well, that's I get her to that point well, where I make her vocalise well, well, what's so well, well, you're her and I'm you, and you say, so tell me, Linda, what do you like about the other recruiter? Well, they are... Um, they're really good. They've I've worked with them for years. They, they provided... A, a big thing for her was they provided lovely candidate experience. The candidates really? are always very positive. They provide a lovely candidate experience. They, help, they, they, they demonstrate our And then brand. he's going to go round around the house and he's going to say, so who's the last candidate you hired, Linda? And you're going to say, Bill. And you're going to say, great, how's he worked out? And you're going to say... Oh, not that well. Oh, sorry to hear that. Let's pick a better example. Who is the other one you hired, Correct. Linda? Dave. And I've got to and get you're going her to say, 
Oh, well, that's a better example then. How's Steve getting Or I've in? got to get her to say, so uh, how have they been getting on with this campaign then? No, no, she's, he's saying be he's, more subtle. He's saying even be more subtle he's than saying, that. So this campaign, how many candidates have seen? And she's going to say five. That's not bad. Oh, we've seen 11. Oh, well, that's great. 11, and right, how great. many have you taken forward second? Well, second two forward. Yeah, you? so he's saying, because my, to be fair to Jeb, and I'm maybe, and, and oh, I, did say, like this about I did say I'm going to get some killer takeaways from this book. To be fair to Jeb, He's saying, right, my, my traditional strategy with that would have been great. So uh, how are they getting on with the vacancy? Or how, how many candidates have you seen? 11. 11. Right. OK, interesting. 11 candidates. Hmm. OK. He's saying. How, and, and, and my traditional strategy and my traditional training has always been 11. How long do you typically spend for an interview? Two hours. 22 hours of interview time. Not to have got a result. Had any seconds yet. And what my traditional training would have been would have been to get her to sit there and go, Jesus Christ, I've sunk 50 hours of man time into a yeah. hiring campaign that's yielded no candidate. And six months down the line, I've still not got a new MD and I'm moving back to America next month. Correct. And, and I do think he's going to be right about that. Yeah. So I'm looking forward a, to I that. think it's a nice way of selling against your competitor. Yes. Anyway, I closed the book because I skipped a few pages because yes. I wanted to pick so it up. So we are, I think, quite clearly much more energised like by it. objections by Jeb Blunt. Uh, pick up a copy. Come and read it with us. Listen to it in your car. Thank you very much. Michael and I are off out tonight. We're off to a posh restaurant for tea, aren't we? First with, ever Michelin star restaurant. Now, I, I girl, just very quickly got my soapbox about this. I don't rate the Michelin star ranking system. And I'll tell you why I don't rate it. Well, it's why has the man who made the Big Mac not got a Michelin star? Because the Michelin star thing is snobbery. You reckon? 100%. 100% it's snobbery. Why has Trench's Fish and Chips in Whitby not, not got, got a Michelin, Michelin star? Well, tell me why hasn't it? The Magpie should have a Michelin star. Well, tell me why it? hasn't it? Because they are the finest fish and chips on It earth. should be. Trench's more than the Magpie. I prefer Trench's. It should be the finest execution of what it is. And the Big Mac and Fries, irrespective of whatever these stuck-up Michelin star people say, is an iconic piece of food that has got to be one of the most recognised things in the world <laughs> so you're and saying if the star restaurant comes out the all man big, all are going to get stuck into it all no, mackies i was saying the man who designed and created the big mac which has stood the test of time for 50 years and is one of the most recognized food brands in the world hasn't got a michelin star that's what's wrong with you and at that we bid you good night